Hey everyone, technically you're getting two days in history today because we're running two episodes from the History Vault. You'll also hear two hosts, me and Tracy V. Wilson. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to this day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson and it's December 31st. Theodosia Burr Alston disappeared on this day in 1812. Of course, she was the daughter of Aaron Burr and Theodosia Bartow. When they met, the elder Theodosia was already married. Theodosia and Aaron Burr got married in 1782 after the death of her first husband. And they had a daughter, the subject of this episode, on June 21st, 1783. The young Theodosia had very ambitious parents. Her parents focused their ambitions on her. This is especially true of her father. He wanted to groom her to be an outstanding lady. Consequently, she was very highly educated, possibly the most educated woman of her time, and she was widely regarded as a child prodigy. When she was only 10, though, the young Theodosia's mother died. It was probably of stomach cancer. And in spite of her very young age, Theodosia started taking on more and more of the work that had been her mother's. She was managing their household and the enslaved staff. She was acting as hostess for her father's gatherings. She really was the mistress of their house by her early teens. In 1800, two things happened that would really change her life. One was that there was an incredibly convoluted presidential election, and Theodosia's father, Aaron Burr, ultimately became the vice president. The other big change was that she met a man named Joseph Alston of South Carolina. He was a wealthy, educated planter, and he had practiced law before turning his attentions to agriculture. He had a rice plantation that had more than 6,000 acres and a staff of more than 200 enslaved Africans. He had to work really hard to convince her to marry him, though. She was attracted to him, but she thought they were way too young to get married. Once they did get married, though, they went on a lengthy bridal tour, and then they had a son around May 22nd of 1802. During the delivery, Theodosia experienced a very severe uterine prolapse, and that negatively affected her health for the rest of her life. She was exhausted and traumatized after giving birth to her son, and in a lot of ways, she felt incredibly isolated in South Carolina. Being on a plantation with such a huge enslaved staff was a very different experience for her than what she had been used to in her father's houses. So just three weeks after giving birth, even though she was definitely still recovering, she went to visit her father, and these visits back home became an annual tradition. Then on July 11th, 1804, when Theodosia was 21, her father shot and killed Alexander Hamilton in a duel. He was arrested for treason, tried and acquitted, but he fled to Europe to try to escape the scandal. Theodosia had kept trying to get permission for her father to come back to the United States, but that didn't happen until 1812. And then unfortunately, they did not have a happy reunion Her son, who was also named Aaron, died just a couple of months after Aaron Burr got back to the United States. She was absolutely traumatized and devastated, and her only consolation was getting home to her father. But the War of 1812 was going on. Theodosia's husband had been elected governor of South Carolina and was brigadier general of the state militia, so there was no way that he could leave his duties and accompany her on a trip to go see her father, An overland voyage would have been 
probably safer in some ways, but very long and uncomfortable, especially for somebody with her medical history. The only way that was reasonable for her to get to her father was by sea. That was a trip that would take less than a week, but it was an already uncertain means of travel through an active war zone that was also full of pirates. In spite of all that, she was set on going. Her husband didn't have the heart to try to keep her at home, and she departed from Georgetown, South Carolina, aboard a small pilot boat called the Patriot on December 31st, 1812. She also had a lot of her father's papers with her to return to him, and Dr. Timothy Ruggles Green on board with her to take care of her because of her illness. She probably had a maid and maybe a cook with her as well. Her husband boarded the ship with her and then rowed back to shore after kissing her goodbye. And then once the Patriot slipped out of view from the shore, it was never seen again. Her father and her husband held out hope for weeks that maybe she had just been delayed somehow, but they were never reunited. They eventually accepted that she had died. There are, though, theories that continue to persist about what really happened. You can learn more about this, including more about those theories, in the October 18th, 2017 episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class. Thanks to Casey Pegram and Chandler Mays for their audio work on this show. You can subscribe to the Stay in History Class on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And you can tune in tomorrow for the birth of one of history's most famous patrons. Hey y'all, I'm closing out the decade from the comfort of my own home, but I'm so glad that you made it to the end of the year with me and still the show must go on. So let's get into the last episode of the year. The day was December 31st, 1953. Hewlin Jack was sworn in as borough president of Manhattan making him the highest-ranking Black elected municipal official in the U.S. at the time. Jack was born in St. Lucia. Jack's father was a minister and was active in Marcus Garvey's Universal Negro Improvement Association. Jack's family spent time on various Caribbean islands, but when he was a teenager, he accompanied his father on a trip to New York City and stayed there even after his father returned to the Caribbean. Jack's plan was to get an American education, to find work, and to become involved in politics. And he immediately set about reaching all of those goals. Jack enrolled in the New York Evening High School and got his diploma in 1929. He later took evening classes at New York University, where he completed three years of study toward a bachelor's degree in business administration. Jack found work at a paper box factory, and he managed to work his way from being a box cutter there to being the vice president of sales. But as he witnessed more racism and discrimination, Jack turned toward a political career. In 1930, Jack joined the Democratic Party. The next year, he became a U.S. citizen. In 1934, he married Gertrude Hewitt, with whom he had one child. She died in 1937, and four years later, he married Almira Wilkinson. They also had one child together. Jack entered politics as millions of Black people left the Republican Party to vote for Democrat Franklin D. Roosevelt as president. He did face racism as he became more involved in the Democratic Party, but in 1940, he was elected to represent Harlem in the New York State Assembly. He served as an assemblyman from 1941 to 1953, after being re-elected several times. 
He became known as a Tammany Hall operative. Tammany Hall was the Democratic Party political machine that had a lot of control in New York City and state politics from the late 18th century to the 1960s. The organization was known for its support of impoverished people and immigrants, as well as its corruption. But Jack was also known for his advocacy for bills that struck down segregation and discrimination. In 1953, as the Republicans moved toward choosing a Black candidate for president of the borough of Manhattan, the Democratic Party decided to run Jack for office. He won the election, becoming the first Black person to hold the office. Jack was the first Black American to hold a major city elective post since Reconstruction. It was a major win, as the office came with a decent salary of $25,000 and a lot of recognition and power. During his time in office, many improvements were made to the infrastructure in Manhattan, and more public housing was made available. Even though some of the projects he supported proved controversial, he was re-elected to a second term in 1957. But during this term, he ran into a political scandal that had an impact on his position. Jack was convicted of accepting an illegal gift of $4,500 after a contractor refused to accept payment for renovations on his apartment. At this point, Tammany Hall's power was waning, and some people were accusing Jack of being an Uncle Tom for working within the system. He resigned as borough president in 1960, but he continued in politics and made good with constituents. Despite becoming involved in another scandal, Jack argued that so much heat was on him because of his race. He was re-elected to the New York State Assembly in 1968, and he continued serving as district leader of the Democratic Party, a position he held from 1946 to 1972. But Jack would become embroiled in political scandal yet again in 1972, when he was wrapped up in conflict of interest charges related to a community service firm that he was a partner in. He was convicted and sentenced to three months in federal prison, which he served in 1973. Jack went on to advise other politicians, endorse the controversial Lyndon H. LaRouche Jr. for the presidential nomination in 1980, and become the founder and executive board member of the Schiller Institute, a political and economic think tank. Jack died in New York City in 1986. His involvement in political scandals, the decline of the Tammany Hall political machine, changes to how political power was organized, and a shifting landscape of race and politics all complicated his legacy. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. And if you want to send us a note on social media, you can do that at T-D-I-H-C podcast on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or you can shoot us an email at thisday at iheartmedia.com. Thanks, as always, for listening to the show, and we'll see you again tomorrow. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.